the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Lots of sports today. Hey, in my past life, this was known as a Steeler Monday. That's not really what I wanted to talk about, although a Steeler loss tends to put everybody in Western PA, not everybody, but lots of people in Western PA in a bad mood for a while. And with everything else that's going on in the world, maybe it is a little bit more important uh, that they uh, get the win, if important is the right word. Uh, they need to try another quarterback. That What would happen if they did? Uh, you know, would the offense stink, maybe, with somebody else in there? Let's leave that subject there and let the sports stations talk about that. But we have spent a lot of time on the show talking about the transgender insanity that has infected sports around the world, and which makes it about a lot more than sports and who wins and loses games. Here's another interesting one. It comes from the Daily Mail. That's M-A-I-L, not Daily M-A-L-E. Anyway, here's the headline, quote, Transgender woman footballer, that's soccer, transgender, transgender woman footballer quits and threatens to sue for discrimination because rivals refuse to compete against her after she left opponents terrified and broke the knee of a player blocking her shot, unquote. That's the headline. Now, uh, of course, since it's a transgender woman footballer, it's actually a man, but probably because of some editorial rule at the Daily MAIL, the reporter had to refer to him as her and or she. Now, this guy who girls are afraid to play against is going to sue them for not playing. So how would that work? Because as I've been saying here for a couple of years now, the situation, the solution, I should say, to this situation and to this insanity is for the girls to just refuse to play with or against men, boys, whatever. So if this guy sues and wins, what happens? Do the police show up at these girls' homes, force them to put on their uniforms, drag them to the field, in this case, the pitch? Now, this is in the U.K., so who knows how that's going to work out. It's pretty crazy over there. But here's hoping the girls tell this guy to take a hike and continue to refuse to play. And by the by the way, the name of the team that this man plays for is Rossington Maine Ladies. More proof that we're living in a Monty Python movie. Some of that every day, it seems. When we come back, bad news for Derek Chauvin. The Supreme Court has refused to hear his appeal on his case. He says he has new evidence that proves his innocence in the death of George Floyd. We'll talk to the producer of a documentary just out on Rumble called The Fall of Minneapolis about lots of that evidence. And in our second half hour, more sports. LeBron James and Coach Prime are the subjects. Lots of stupidity. Stick around. Well, Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis cop who's serving 21 years in prison for the murder of uh, George Floyd, Got some bad news today. The Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal. The Minnesota State Supreme Court had refu refused to hear it earlier. 
There's plenty of evidence out there that appears to show that Chauvin didn't kill Floyd. Liz Collin is the author of They're Lying, the Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd. She's also the producer of a documentary out now on Rumble called The Fall of Minneapolis. She joins us now. Liz, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So um, before we get to your documentary, I guess i got to get your reaction to the Supreme Court refusing to hear his appeal today. Was that expected? You know, yeah, kind of every step of the way with the, the legal process has been expected, uh, sadly, in this case. And that's kind of, I know what we'll talk about with the, the book and, and the movie. Um, certainly not the news that um, Derek Chauvin obviously wanted with the U.S. Supreme Court, but it definitely was um, a pretty steep hill to climb to get them to go ahead and, and take this on after everything that, that's happened uh, across the country uh, for the last three years. Yeah, before we go on, I, I also, um, I, I see that you are, are you a former news anchor in Minneapolis, or are you currently one? Yeah, so I, um, just a, a bit of a background on, on me, but I was in mainstream media for, for nearly 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I left mainstream media over all of this, just um, really disgusted by the lies that the, the media w- was pushing from the beginning uh, with this. Certainly there were other stories that, that bothered right. me along the way, too. But I, I currently uh, work for a place called Alpha News in Minnesota. We're an independent media media group, we do more conservative media and, and, mm-hmm. and such. Um, but, but I've been here for the last uh, couple of years. Well, I, I worked in local TV news for 30 years here. I did sports. And now I'm talking about things that actually matter. But that's that's another, <laughs> that's another story. But uh, so I, I kind of know how local media and local TV news works or doesn't work. Um, and we'll get. I want to get to that too. But why is your documentary called "The Fall of Minneapolis"? Yeah. So um, just to get in a little bit more to the, the background. Um, so I'm a, a longtime uh, CBS news anchor at the at the time at a place called um, WCCO. We were CBS owned and operated station and um, kind of living the dream as far as working at the station I grew up watching and I was the number one rated uh, news anchor on the weekends when I was you know kind of that's what you do you climb the ladder and you want people to trust you and everything um, but I um, was married to a longtime Minneapolis uh, police officer oh. um, his name was uh, is <laughs> used to with us uh, Bob, Bob Kroll but at the at the time uh, his position was a uh, union president for the Minneapolis Police Department um, so I was privy to a lot of this information uh, coming in with, with this case that I kept really close track of, and I tried to kind of get the truth out there from from the beginning uh, with all of this. But instead, you, just, you had the media clearly decide to push this dangerous narrative uh, from day one when the facts didn't support uh, what they were doing. And we're all paying the consequences to this day of, you know, mm-hmm. of these lies, it was easy to come up with the, the title for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're lying because I shouted that for, for many months, if not years, uh, through, through all of this. But, but the fall of Minneapolis is, is kind of taking a, a closer look at the people really involved, going as close to this, you know, story. I hate to even call it a story because this is real life for, for everyone. Um, but the people that were really involved, involved with the, the riots, uh, Minneapolis police lost 380 officers in the wake of all of this. The, the city is unrecognizable in many areas. It changed uh, so much in the city, and it really was very easy to come up with, again, the, the fall of Minneapolis, because it was. Again, getting back to, I, I guess I'm a little bit fixated on the media part of it, because I did it, and I, I know how 
you know local TV stations work. Um, and I'm I'm just wondering when were you the Lone Ranger in pushing back on this, and and what were you, what were the what was management um, and the, and the producers what were they saying at, at WCCO when you started saying hey I'm not sure I'm buying all this. Yeah, you know, there were these mandates put in place very early on, which I talk about in the book, um, that I knew that this wasn't your typical, um, you know, criti- critical incident. There was something more at, at work here um, with this movement. Um, you know, the, the very first day we had press conferences involved with uh, the, the chief of police, the mayor of Minneapolis, talking about how this isn't something they were trained in, also that they've never heard of George Floyd um, and then I go online to the Minneapolis uh, Police Department's website where they list their training manual and two pages are mysteriously missing from the manual. So saying to the newsroom, you know, they're lying about this. Uh, you know, it is a part of it is a part of training, even though we see that the chief of police then take the stand months later uh, saying that it's not in the head of training as well. Uh, but nobody pushed back on, on that. Nobody pushed back on the fact that George Floyd was arrested a, a year earlier. He was the subject of an undercover drug investigation in Minneapolis. Um, and if you play the body camera footage side by side from that arrest in 2019 to what transpired in 2020, it's almost identical. Um, so I wanted to talk to that officer who was involved with that undercover uh, drug arrest mm-hmm. that, that took place back in, in 2019. But again, you had them lying about this um, very early on, and uh, here we are, paying, paying the consequences to this day. And what about the rest of the Minneapolis media? Same thing? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, cancel culture came after me. Of course, I had to lose my uh, you know, position at the station, and how dare I be married to a cop. Were you fired? Um, as, as a journalist, uh, I was demoted. I lost my uh, position that I held for a dozen years. Okay. Um, over it, and I wasn't allowed to report on anything anymore, whether it be uh, you know government, policing issues, et cetera. So I was kind of put in a closet and knew that I had to had to go. Um, but, you know, that's what the left does, The you know, when we yep. let the, the mob go ahead and, and run over Minnesota in, in many cases, and nobody really was, was pushing back. But I will say, you know, since putting the, the book out, and also jumping over to independent media, there's uh, there's a lot more of us out there. People still do believe in the truth, and the truth still does uh, matter. So um, it's kind of restored my faith in humanity a bit. But I really want people to take away from the book, from the film, that this simply did not have to happen if the truth was told. And That's they all- lied, and, uh, yeah, and it just uh, didn't happen that way. And the book uh, is, we're talking to Liz Collin, and her book is there, there, as in They Are Lying, The Media, The Left, and the Death of George Floyd. And she's the producer of a documentary you can see on Rumble called The Fall of Minneapolis. Um, so, uh, Liz, what will surprise people when they see the actual body cam video of his arrest in, in your documentary? Yeah, I think there's so many parts about that. Um, and just to, to mention also, this is something that was kept from the public, too, for a reason. There's only, you know, we're only allowed to see that viral Facebook video in the beginning. And there's a reason for that. So this is the very first time that Minneapolis police body camera footage is withheld from the public because it shows and it tells a very different story. You have um, a black officer in fact, who arrests George Floyd, right, for the most racist uh, police incident that's ever transpired in America. A lot of people don't know about the, you know, the, the two uh, pol- two of the four who are in prison, you know, are m- minority uh, police officers. You also have, um, 
you know, uh, George Floyd talking about how he can't breathe long before uh, Derek Chauvin even arrives on scene that day. Um, he's denying again and again that he took any drugs. Uh, these officers are actually quite compassionate, um, asking him, what are you on, dude? What did you take? Because they recognize something is, is going on. You have George Floyd himself asking to be laid on the ground because he refuses to comply by being put in the uh, police uh, the police car to to take him take him in they they try again and again to get him to to say you know what are you on or what's wrong with you and uh, George Floyd is you know kind of telling a, a different story so we just let that video really play play for itself and for most people they've never even seen that uh, before and and people should question why that's been kept from them for so long what what about the evidence that never made it into the trial what are some and I, I had just a couple of weeks ago I had a former uh, federal prosecutor on who told me, I think I had him on here. I think it was the week of the trial beginning, or I, it was right around the beginning. And, and he said uh, that uh, Derek Chauvin is innocent, and this trial's a joke. And he was a former prosecutor, but and he so he gave me some ideas of what he thought didn't make it into the trial. What did you find? Yeah. So when I talk about this um, MRT or maximal restraint technique, this training, you have officers, again, in this body camera footage, making references to doing just that on on George Floyd. Well, uh, again, we're told this isn't how they train, even though all the officers interviewed in my movie uh, say, say that, in fact, uh, they were. But but that MRT, that training slide itself was not allowed in court. Um, the judge decided decided not to allow that in court. So that helped to, to change uh, the narrative uh, quite a bit. And also you have, um, you, you know, different different um, things happening with the, with the prosecutors in this case. This was the attorney general who jumped in to take over the prosecution of these um, cops, a longtime police-hating mm-hmm. <laughs> attorney general. Yep. Um, and I think that that had so much to do with this, uh, with this case uh, as well. But um, you also have Thomas Lane, who's trying to save George Floyd's life in the back of the ambulance, you know, doing chest compressions. That video itself is not allowed um, in court. You have, um, you know, as I talk about this nearly 18-minute police interaction that's recorded on on body camera from, from start to finish, you have about 90 seconds that jurors are allowed to see in the end uh, when it comes to Derek Chauvin's trial. So, so many examples of, again, not what jurors were allowed to see, uh, but what they were not here. Was there ever any evidence that Derek Chauvin is a racist? <laughs> no, that's a, you know, and that's that's the narrative I think that we really put to bed with this with this film. Um, this was made about race, and it has nothing <laughs> nothing to to do with it whatsoever. Uh, Derek Chauvin, in fact, most of his partners um, that he's had over the years in his uh, nearly nineteen year career at Minneapolis were minority cops. Not once person has ever come forward and said anything. Um, in fact, I haven't put the question to Alex King, who again is serving a three and a half year prison sentence um, due to all this. He's his third day on the job in, in Minneapolis. And he says, I asked him, you know, do you blame uh, Derek Chauvin for any of this? And he says, no, he's always been a, a legally abiding um, police officer. Uh, you know, he trained under Derek Chauvin and he'd never seen anything. He's very by the book, um, and that's just sort of how he how he was. So it's very telling uh, this narrative that the media helped to push, and there's no facts to support any of it. We're talking to Liz Collins. She's the author of "They Are Lying: The Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd." 
also the producer of a documentary out on Rumble right now called The Fall of Minneapolis. Um, uh, well, you were working in the media at the time, so we, we covered that, but I, I, I saw that you, uh, in the documentary, you actually interview Chauvin uh, and uh, one of the other cops who was there in prison. How are they dealing with this? I mean, I, I can't you even know, I imagine think- it. Yeah, it, it really is hard to imagine, I think, for, for any of us. And I think for, for Chauvin especially, you know, he was put in uh, solitary confinement for nearly a year. Um, and it has a lot, I think, of, you know, PTSD, as anybody would, right. uh, from all of this. But they all just kind of felt like in the beginning, you know, this isn't what happened. And they really couldn't believe that even when the medical evidence came out, um, they thought, well, this is it. We, we, you know, this shows that we didn't, uh, you know, murder anybody in the middle of the day on Memorial Day. Um, you know, when everybody has a, a phone camera out pointed uh, pointed on us, but uh, so they thought, well, you know, there's no way they can charge us because this isn't right. what <laughs> actually went on. But um, you know, Alex King talks about how he's not going to let this define him, and it's it's sad. This is a, a kid who dreamed of being a, a cop. He's from North Minneapolis, and his mom's a longtime teacher in Minneapolis, and. What it has done to, to their family is um, really quite, uh, it's very heartbreaking and disgusting all at the, all at the same time. And, uh, you know, with uh, Derek Chauvin, it seems to you know, be exhausting different uh, appeals at, at this point. Um, it's, it's quite sad because, you know, as any storyteller, if you will, or reporter would like to give you some sort of happy ending here, but I don't know what that what that looks like and um you know with with many prosecutors um across the country continuing to to target uh, police and continue this war on cops you know as it, as it's called um i just wish i had uh, better news about all of it to, yeah. to share do you think if uh, the jurors saw your documentary they could in any way convict chauvin you know, um, I've been been asked that before about about the jurors, and um, I, Derek even talks about this in the movie a little bit. Just being, you know, the trial was a sham. That's what he refers to it as, um, and it was sort of like the script was written before the trial even began. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you had such a, you know, I don't think you can really underestimate the amount um, just of pressure these jurors were under to come to, you know, what was this foregone. Uh, conclusion i mean i guess i look at even my family who really had nothing to do with this at all how we had received death threats and you know careers were changed uh, etc and we're, we really have nothing to do with this imagine if you're a juror um on oh, this yeah. um you know on this case and all the the pressure they're they're under and, and remember this was allowed to take place uh 10 months later in the same area where they had just uh you know destroyed or damaged 1500 businesses and riots and you know the most expensive riots in in u.s history um you know they didn't grant a, a change of venue as uh derek chauvin's uh, defense attorney wanted um and you know there's <laughs> national guard troops outside the, the courthouse barbed wire um you know i could go on and on about the the scene um of of the courthouse but it really sent a message to to jurors no doubt I want to go back before we finish here to the to local media in Minneapolis because I'm trying to picture if this story had happened in Pittsburgh and how it would be covered. Um, I, I I'm pretty tough on local news here whenever I get a chance because I think it stinks now, and uh, yeah. I, I I worked in it when it still mattered, and uh, I've been out of it for about 15 years. So I was I I started in it in the late 70s doing sports, but 
you know, I was around the newsroom and I knew I know how things worked and I saw it by the time I left. It was a joke and everything is, you know, it's weather 17 times an hour and uh, right. you know, car, <laughs> car crashes and murders is whatever happened on a local news level for someone who was been it was in it for a long time. This is a great story. Um, it, 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 it for no other reason, just to get eyeballs to watch you. You would think that they they somebody would take the angle that you're taking on this, and if they want, try to destroy it and say that it, you know you 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 don't have a clue and everything in it's wrong. Is are are, are the media in Minneapolis just done with this story? Then they're not going to deal with it anymore. Yeah, I think there was really one side of this that they picked early on. You had reporters being allowed, you know, to use the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Um, that was in, that was encouraged in in many ways, and we obviously know what a sham that organization right. uh, is, and didn't didn't help uh, Black lives. And again, this was made all about race and this dangerous, um, you know, divisive narrative that they, that they pushed. And I also think with the media, what we see is a lot of people who are very young that are now starting in these bigger markets and they have been indoctrinated in many ways Mm -hmm. and they see things as this is just reality uh when i'm more of a critical thinker at at my age and have lived a a bit longer here and i know that um you know there are a lot of powerful forces at work and and you know number one number two with reporting you follow the money you follow the power and that's where the you know that's where the, the problems really became with this um with this story, we had uh, the perfect politicians for this to play out in Minnesota. Um, and, you know, and I also believe in holding the powerful accountable. That's supposed to be a job of a, a journalist. And, um, you know, I don't think that a lot of that's happening anymore in local media, especially. There's uh, there's a lot of gutlessness out there, isn't there? Yeah, it seems it, it it seems that people are are fearful, and also I think there's a narcissistic trend in in local media. It's more about themselves, and mm-hmm. they've forgotten about empathy and telling other people's stories. They care more about maybe what they're wearing that day, or <laughs> um, as ridiculous as that sounds, but they oh, almost think that no. you know they've become celebrities in a, in a way. And you know, your job is supposed to be. Uh, Telling the stories of other people. Yeah, I know that's. Book. I know that's not what we're supposed to be talking about, but it's something I could talk about forever. Uh, yeah, I don't know how long ago you started, but when I started, the people I worked with, men and women, they liked doing news more than they liked doing TV. Right. Do you know yeah. what I mean when I say that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting too. Like even putting the even putting the documentary out there. You know, I think we are almost up to. Uh, 700 or 800,000 views now on the Rumble. I do want to let your audience know it is available for free um, on our Rumble channel, Alpha News um, MN. But the, the, uh, sometimes I'm, I'm called names. The worst, the worst we get is I look old and, um, uh, you know, something about my hair or, or yeah. whatnot. And I'm like, you know, if this is the criticism, we're winning. This yeah. is great. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's called The Fall of Minneapolis, and, and they can find it on your, it's Alpha, A-L-P-H-A News, right? Yep, that's right. Alpha News MN for, for Minnesota. So that's our, our rumble. Or if you just go to thefallofminneapolis.com, it'll get you there, too. Well, uh, good luck. with You already got 700,000 views. That's great. I hope a lot of people watch it, and I hope Chauvin gets out one of these days. But I, you know. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I will say Rumble had some mysterious uh, cyber attack today, and it was down for about a half hour. But I think it's back up again. <laughs> I don't a, think there are any coincidences at this point. So. Yeah, what a shock. Hey. Hey, Liz, yeah. I hope to have you on again sometime, maybe when we follow up, see where this goes and have you on to talk about this. But uh, 
I'm glad you escaped from local news like I did, and uh, good luck and great job on the on the documentary. Thank you. Anytime. I appreciate your work. Thank you. Okay, that's uh, Liz Collin, and the uh, documentary is The Fall of Minneapolis. You can find it on Rumble. I'll be right back. Well, uh, how about some sports? Again, we do sports here every now and then, but it's it's not, you know, a place where we do a lot of X's and O's and talk about who should be playing quarterback for the Steelers, although I did mention earlier that I I think it might be time to try somebody new there. But anyway, uh, I just wanted to let you know that the University of Colorado football team lost to Washington State 56-14 to on Saturday, and it wasn't that close. It was like 42 to nothing or 42-7, something like that at halftime. So, uh, and in case you haven't been paying attention, um, the University of Colorado is now coached by Coach Prime, that would be Dion Sanders, and so I came across this story. This I saw that they lost fifty-six to fourteen to Washington State Saturday, um, and that's a bad loss for them, obviously. But um, I, I thought back to when the, the college football season started, and Coach Prime, who left Jackson State to go there to Colorado, had won his first three games. So I came across this piece that was written by Tom Robbie, that's R-A-A-B-E, for the American Spectator, not exactly a sports publication. And uh, it goes something like this. He's Coach Prime indeed. He wears the name Prime on his gear. It's emblazoned on his fleece, on his jackets, on his shirts, on nearly everything he wears. Sports pundits call him Prime, but then so does everybody else. Now that his Buffaloes have started their season 3-0, and Sanders has the sports world, not to mention the Nets, morning shows, and even 60 minutes eating out of his hand. The network pregame shows have been following him around like puppies. Uh, and uh, these are not so much pregame shows as they are pep rallies uh, as former stars and coaches slobber over Sanders and abandon to the mountain breezes any semblance of objectivity and fairness. So that's uh, that's that's uh, uh, Tom Robbie's impression back on September 23rd. So uh, Sanders' early success, this is again Robbie writing, has blunted any and all of criticism for his roster-building tactics in Boulder, fresh off a 27 and six record at Jackson State. Uh, Sanders announced his arrival to his new Colorado squad last year as follows. This is what. Dion Sanders said. Now, this is supposed to be, you know, college football. College kids, most of whom will never sniff the NFL, like 98% of whom will never sniff the NFL, who are going to uh, college, you know, like college, go to class and also play football and get a scholarship. This is what Dion Sanders said. We have a few positions already taken care of because I'm bringing my luggage with me, and it's Louis Vuitton. He's referring to his players. I'm coming. It ain't going to be no more of the mess that these wonderful fans, the student body, and some of your parents have put up with for probably two decades now. This is, he's talking to the kids, students. I'm coming, and when I get here, it's going to be changed. So I want you all to get ready to go ahead and jump in the portal and do whatever you're going to do, get, because if more of you jump in, the more room you make. So in case you don't know what the portal is, you don't follow this, 
It's called the transfer portal, which didn't exist until a couple of years ago. Used to be a player if he transferred had to uh, he lost a year of eligibility had to sit out a year before he could play, which was obviously meant to discourage them from transferring. That's all changed. If you transfer, you can play right away. Um, so this is he. These kids were were college students on scholarship at Colorado. They're not going to the NFL. They finished one and eleven last year, but they're you know they're college kids. They're they're in school. They're doing what they they're. You know they're doing their best. I you would assume they're one and eleven. They stink. The team stinks, but they're college kids. They're in class, and he says we have a few positions already taken care of because I'm bringing my luggage with me, and it's Louis Vuitton. That's what he says to these kids. You guys stink. I'm coming in. I'm bringing some good players here, and he's saying to the players, I'm coming, and when I get here, it's going to be changed. So I want y'all to get ready to go ahead and jump in the portal. That's the transfer portal. And do whatever you're going to get because the more of you jump in, the more room you make. In other words, the more of you get out of here, the more room I have for better players to come in. So so Sanders, he got rid of a bunch of them. Uh, I think 71 players left or something like that. Yeah. Uh, He he brought in a group of hand-picked skill position players, including two sons and the top recruit in the country, and showed the door to dozens of scholarship players. A total of 71 kids left the program and transferred. 71 kids. You're only allowed to have 85 on the roster. 71 kids left. And, as, and according to uh, Tom Robbie here, he says, Apologists are lauding the overhaul as the way of the future as a, may, as a means of successfully employing the new transfer rules. But then here's what uh, Pat Narduzzi this is Pat Narduzzi, Pitt's coach. He's quoted in the story. That's not what the rule intended to be. It was not to overhaul your roster. We'll see how it works out, but that to me looks bad on college football coaches across the country. The reflection is on one guy right now, but when you look at it overall, those kids that have moms and dads and brothers and sisters and goals in life, I don't know how many of those 70 left really wanted to leave or they were they kicked in the butt to get out. When I got to Pitt back in 2015, I didn't kick anybody off. Zero. Those are your guys. When you become a head coach, you inherit that team and you coach that team. If someone wants to leave, that's great. You don't kick them out. I disagree with that whole process. That's not why I got in the game. So so then he goes on, okay? Uh, he, he wins his first game, and their slogan is, We coming. We coming. We're, we're really good. We're coming. Look out for us. The coach of last week's opponent, this is again Tom Robbie writing this, Jay Norvell did seem to get personal. He said, when I talk to grown-ups, this is, he's the coach at Colorado State, I take my hat and glasses off, a reference to Sanders' typical on-air uh, appearance. That's what my mother taught me. Sanders capitalized on the comments, seeing a surge in sales of his signature Prime 21 sunglasses, which sell for $67 a pair. Following Norvell's comment, reportedly 70,000 pairs have been sold, bringing in over $4.5 million for which the coach uh, receives royalties. So, Rob, this is, again, this is Rob is writing this in, in, on September 23rd. Not a few football eyes will be tuning into Buff's games in the next few weeks to see how the look-at-me coach and his talented but young program fares against more traditional powerhouses. Saturday, Colorado travels to Eugene, Oregon to face the 10th-ranked Ducks. 
while the next week they entertain the fifth-ranked USC Trojans in Boulder. Now, there's another part to this story. As I mentioned, Sanders brought two of his kids in, both really good players. His uh, son, Shador, is uh, considered a top prospect, NFL prospect, could be the number one pick in the draft at some point. He's a quarterback. So uh, here's, what, here's what Shador did in his early days at Colorado. He transferred over with his dad from Jackson State. Um, and what he did was there was, a, there was a, um, a confrontation at the middle of the field with the University of Nebraska before they played, the, the players and they, they something about them standing on the Colorado logo at the middle of the field, some stupid thing like that. So what um, Shador did was he uh, went over to the players and held up. He was wearing a watch. Now, he's on a football field getting ready to play a football game. He's wearing a watch, which he put in the players' faces. The watch, I don't even know if I pronounced this right, um, but it's a uh, it's a French some kind of a French it's an Audemars Piquet P I G U E T I don't know it's a Royal Oaks Royal Oak model of that watch fifteen five hundred uh, it features thirty carats of diamonds was purchased by Shador in twenty twenty two while he was still on Jackson State's roster and like his dad's Louis Vuitton luggage the custom AP that's the shortening. The short uh, version of the name of the watch has also made its way to Boulder, Colorado. So he holds this watch up. It goes for twenty-seven thousand eight hundred dollars. That's the cost of the watch. Again, he's dealing with college kids on the Nebraska team, many of whom uh, come from families that don't have a lot of money. He's he's waving the watch in their face, and it turns out that this watch is not just twenty-seven thousand eight hundred dollars. It's seventy thousand dollars. That's how much this watch is worth because of the diamonds they put in it. And uh, so that's what he did. So he was part of the story, too. The watch, the flex, they call it. That became part of the story in college football. Uh, Shador's, um, you know, showing his watch off everybody. Okay? So that's what's going on at the University of Colorado. Now, they're all feeling pretty good. They're going 3-0. and And I said, as I said, Tom Robbie wrote this story on September 23rd. As I started off the story with, they lost 56-14 to 14 on Saturday. Since those first three weeks when they were having all the fun, they've lost six out of seven. They stink, okay? They stink. And um, I'm hate, I, I, and I, let me tell you something. When this, when this started, I was kind of rooting for Deion Sanders. I thought it was a pretty interesting story, you know. But then when you read about what he, the way he treated those kids who were there, it did nothing to him. And he came in and just crapped all over them and kicked them out. And they, they had to go scatter all to the wind and find another uh, spot where they can get a scholarship, many of whom, I can guarantee you, coming from a 1-11 team, didn't get another scholarship. So uh, I couldn't be happier to see that Colorado is now, they've, they've lost six of their last seven. They, they played themselves out of it. you got to win six games at least to go to a, get a bowl bid, which would be a big big accomplishment coming off a 1-11 season, even though bowls are a joke now and so many teams get to go to bowl games. But they ain't going to no bowl game neither. They're six and seven, or six out of seven, knocked them out of any bowl consideration. And here's hoping 
that it continues next year for Coach Prime. And if he if he has another year like this year, watch how fast he gets out of Colorado and leaves everybody he dragged over there from Jackson State in the lurch. Just bet on it. I'll be right back. Well, let's uh, finish up here. We'll continue with the sports theme for today. Before I get to that, one of my um, one of my goals in life is to make it down to Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, uh, or and or Mount Vernon, uh, George Washington's home down in Virginia. I'm a big history guy, especially um, interested in that era, the Revolution, and I've read tons of books about biographies of all of them, many of them. And, and so anyway, I, I want to get there. So if you go down. To- <laughs> If you go down there, what you see, and I did go to Harry Truman's house in um, in uh, Independence, Missouri, and I loved it. It's, it's like the, it's set up the same way as it was when he was living there in the forties, and I, I loved it. I walked through the house and saw the little cup and saucer sitting there at the kitchen table with, which is where he ate lunch with his uh, wife after he left the presidency, and, uh, and you know became just a regular guy. Anyway, so when you go to visit one of those places. Uh, that's what the, uh, a, a museum for someone like that. What you see is how they lived. They'll if if it's not the actual place where they lived, they'll reenact or or recreate the scene of what it looked like in the house that they lived in. So I just want to let you know that if if you <laughs> if if you got not busy on Friday, make your way up to Akron. And you can go to the LeBron James Museum. It's opening on Friday. It's only 23 bucks to get in. That's his uniform number. And one of the things they have there, along with, you know, shoes that he wore and the usual stuff, is a reenactment or re- recreation, I guess is the better word, of the apartment that he lived in with his mother in Akron before he became, you know, well known and. Became a household word, and LeBron James, and became known as uh, the next one, or whatever they called him. Uh, so he's got this. Um, he's got this museum now. Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. I'm pretty sure they were dead when they turned their houses, their homes, into museums. So what shows up there is kind of left to the people who are in charge of the museum. This is this is another story. I, I should give credit to Tom Robbie again. I came across this because I saw the story on Deion, Deion Sanders, so I, I I couldn't resist this story about LeBron James. But I, I thought the, the best point he made was the usual stupid stuff is in the museum. If you want to go see that, go ahead for 23 bucks. But the best part is that, as Robbie points out, he's still alive. So he gets to decide what goes in the museum. And the guy, I don't know. There's a chance that he has a kind of kind of a big ego. So, if you're really interested in seeing what the apartment that LeBron James lived in when he was in high school looked like, there's your chance. You know, Akron's only about a hundred miles away. You can get there in less than two hours. Go on up there and check it out. LeBron James will be happy you went there, and he'll take your twenty-three bucks happily. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.